You're listening to The Marketplace, a podcast that's meant to inspire other creatives to make meaningful strides in their own personal and professional life. My name is Priest Willis Sr., and I'm an entrepreneur, investor, author, and all-around inquisitive guy. I'm sitting down with other creators to talk about their process and lessons they've learned on getting the answers to the questions many of us are looking for. Let's get ready to roll. Today, I am joined with Kristen Hadid, who imagines a world in which all organizations have cultures that empower people to keep climbing toward the best version of themselves every day. As the young leader of Student Made, a successful cleaning company that hires students, Kristen has fostered a unique perspective on leadership, organizational culture, and engaging the next generation. In October 2017, she published her first book, Permission to Screw Up, which we talk about, and she tells the stories of her biggest mistakes in leadership. She hopes to inspire other leaders to share their perfectly imperfections, stories of success to empower people with the knowledge that even if they screw up, they can still make it. Kristen and Student Maid have been featured in news outlets, including PBS, Fox, Time, Forbes. She did a TED Talk. So I want you to listen in. We have a great conversation. We talk about her business, Student Maid. We get into her book, Permission to Screw Up. And she has some very valuable information around how she learned, how she screwed up and built a business, a successful business in the cleaning industry with students, the millennial generation. I hope you enjoy this. Without further ado, here is Kristen Hadid. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's great having you on. I really appreciate you joining us. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, I am what you would probably call an accidental entrepreneur. It was never my intention to start a company. I was in college at the University of Florida, very lost and studying finance because truthfully, I knew that you'd make a lot of money if you moved to New York and worked on Wall Street. And so I didn't really enjoy my classes, but at the time it was all about getting that six figure salary. Mm -hmm. So I'm in college lost and not really loving what I'm doing. And I fall in love with a pair of jeans and it sounds so silly, but I see these jeans. They were $99 at the mall didn't have the money to pay for them. And I don't know what it was about them, but I just had to have them. (laughs) I knew that my parents would never, ever give me the money to pay for them. And I was completely broke as most college students are. So I thought, what is something I can do to make 99 bucks? And I decided to clean someone's house. I, I put an ad on Craigslist. A woman hired me, even though I didn't have any experience. It was a complete disaster. It took me seven hours to clean her house when I told her it would only take me two and uh, (laughs) that, you know, it it didn't go well, but she wanted me to come back every week. And that's kind of how it started. So at the time, I thought this was just a great way to make money in school. You know, never in a million years did I think that I'd be standing here almost 10 years later saying that I'm in the cleaning business. But when you look back on your life and some of the things that you were involved in, you realize that there was an entrepreneur spirit there, but you were just saying that you never really set out to be an entrepreneur. It was always kind of a chase for a dollar, but you realize eventually there was an entrepreneur within you, right? Right. Yeah, I grew up. I mean, my parents really fostered 
our creativity. I have a younger sister and it was just anything we wanted to do. They never said that's impossible. You know, I remember being six years old and I wanted to have a babysitting service and obviously no one's hiring a six-year-old to babysit anybody, but I made these flyers and my mom drove me all around town. We hung them up everywhere. I waited by the phone for someone to call. Of course, no one called. That was my childhood. No, they never said, that's silly. No one's going to call. That's a waste of time. You know, they've really encouraged us to go for it. And I think when I wanted the jeans, my initial thought was what's something I can do to make the money instead of let me go out and get a job. And I think that has a lot to do with the way my parents raised my sister and I. How important is it for parents, even while you're in college, you're talking about being broke. I have two children in college. One is on a scholarship. Another one is not. So they really feel that pressure of making some money in school. How supportive were your parents about doing stuff outside of school to kind of generate money and just let you foster your entrepreneurial spirit? My parents, they have... um it's a really great balance. I I call it tough love. Mm. The things that we absolutely need, the necessities, the things that affect our livelihood. Luckily they were in a position to be able to give my sister and I those things, but Mm -hmm. anything beyond that, it was like, if you want that, you have to work for that. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, I mean, I would imagine it's really hard as a parent. You love your kids. You want to give them the world. You want to give them more than what you had, but it's kind of like if you give them all that and then they do graduate from college and they go out into the real world, it doesn't work that way. So I think my parents really prepared me, especially my business for how it really is. And, and an example of that is when I started my company, I really needed a loan. I got this big contract to clean all these apartments and I had to hire a bunch of people and buy a bunch of supplies. And I couldn't get a loan from a bank. I mean, my credit was non-existent. Mm -hmm. My parents said, so you you have to convince a banker to give you the money. You know, we're not giving you the money. And I needed a small amount. We're talking $10,000. It wasn't a huge amount, but they didn't give it to me. And I was turned down 26 times by different bankers. And finally, someone gave me the money, but it taught me that if you really want something, you have to go out there and you have to figure it out. And I'm so grateful. At the time, was I grateful? No. (laughs) But now I'm so grateful that they have that tough love approach. As kids are going through college or school or struggling, there's some beauty in the struggle. Yes, absolutely. And then what's funny, too, is when I got my loan, my parents gave me total control over it. They said, this is your loan, so you better spend it wisely. And that was kind of the only thing they said. And what do I do? I take all my friends to sushi and spend a thousand dollars in my business loan on sushi and quickly ran out of money. And, you know, but I needed, it's almost like you have to fail and you have to royally mess up to learn what not to do in the future. And they were very hands-off. So you're coming out of school, coming out of the university of Florida, and now you're coming out into the real workforce. And I read somewhere, heard somewhere that you turned down a six figure job to kind of pursue things that you actually wanted to do. Talk about that process a little bit. Kristen shares the next part of her journey in starting a cleaning company, something that she didn't plan on doing forever, but eventually she got locked into. And this is where she began to learn some valuable lessons about leadership. I started cleaning the one house and And then she told her friends about me and throughout college, it slowly grew. And for a long time, it was just me cleaning and then I needed help. So I hired a few other people. It was very small and never my intention to be my career by any means. But then right before I graduated, I got a contract to clean hundreds and hundreds of empty apartments. It was a short-term contract, only three weeks. And I hired 60 people 
to handle the work and they were all students. And there was this really defining moment that happened that summer. I didn't have any experience came to leadership, you know, hardly any experience in running a business. And 45 of my 60 employees quit on me at the exact same time, a couple days into that contract, because (laughs) while they were outside cleaning these filthy apartments, I was sitting in the air conditioned clubhouse not because I, not because I thought I was better than them. I just truly didn't know what my role was as a leader. So that moment when they walked out on me, it made me obsessed with learning how to be a better leader and learning how to build a company that people really wanted to be a part of, even though cleaning was in the job description. And so after that moment, I was able to get them back and I became a different person. I mean, I really tried to learn about who they were and their names and what they were studying and what they wanted to do with their lives. And we became a family. And so when the contract ended, I didn't want my job to end. They didn't want their jobs to end. And at graduation, I got this call. It was a dream job I thought I wanted, but there wasn't any part of me that was excited And even though I would have made a lot of money and my company at the time wasn't hardly making any money because everything I made, I had to put back into the business to give it a chance to succeed. There was just something about it that I knew I wanted to to keep going with. And everyone around me, aside from my parents, like, what are you doing? Cleaning? You know, are you kidding? You could have moved to Manhattan. But I knew it was the right decision. And I'm so glad that I trusted my gut and myself, because I think oftentimes we're pressured to go after certain opportunities, maybe not because we're truly excited about them, but because we feel that that's the right choice. This is at the really, really main point why I wanted to talk to you, because your story is really interesting. First of all, you're kind of tapping into a millennial generation of workers. They get written off a lot. People say that they're entitled and all that stuff. And obviously, I don't believe that I have kids that are in their 20s. So I have a thought process about them and they need an opportunity to grow just like we did as Gen Xers and the baby boomers before us. Kristen and I get into an interesting conversation about millennials, who's also known as Generation Y. And her and I both agree that millennials get a bad rap in a lot of cases. Baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Z, whoever it is, all have opportunities to figure themselves out to discover themselves, and it slowly unravels. It's like an onion that slowly peels itself back. And a lot of times, older people, baby boomers, my generation, Generation X, are so quick to judge and call this generation entitled or lazy. But they have a different way of approaching business. They are just as excited to get out and work and create as we are, but they're not given that opportunity to discover the new world. Kristen shares more. How did you go back and get those 45 or 40 or how many ever came back? How did you go back and get those people? What did you say to them? What was the incentive behind that? I remember when they walked in and quit. My first response was I was angry. I blamed them. I remember thinking, how could they do this to me? How could they sign up for a job and commit to it and then just quit? But then I truly panicked because I had so much work to do and we didn't have a lot of time to get it done. And we only had 15 people left. And so I went and found the 15 who didn't, who hadn't quit. And I could tell they didn't like, they definitely didn't love their jobs either. And um, told them what happened and said, can you help me get them back? And I think it just sounded more fun than cleaning. I don't think it was because they truly wanted to help me, but you know, I was paying them to help me. So they did it. And they said, why don't we have a meeting at your house? And 
to get everyone there, we, we promised everyone an early paycheck. So that's what we did. And everyone showed up and I wasn't sure what to say. The hard part was I didn't even know what I had done. Mm. You know, no, they didn't give me a reason when they quit. They just literally walked out. So I was just honest and an unintentionally vulnerable. I, I said, I don't know what I'm doing that, you know, I'm, I've never had a business before. I'm no experience being a leader. And I think they just saw that I was a human and that I wasn't this leader who thought she was better than everyone and sitting in the clubhouse with my feet propped up. I just truly didn't know. And my heart was in the right place. So one said, I'll come back. And the other next to him said, I'll come back. And before I knew it, they were all saying, I'll come back. And we just went back to the apartments that night. And I think I'm so lucky that that happened early on because it taught me that the best thing you can do when you don't have the answers is just to admit that. And just Mm -hmm. to say out loud, like I may be the leader. Yes, but it doesn't mean that I'm perfect. And it doesn't mean that I always know what I'm doing. And that very much influenced my leadership style. And I think helped my company create this environment where people don't, they don't hesitate to admit when they're struggling and they aren't afraid to ask for help. And that's what I think. I think that's what vulnerability looks like in a company. I love the approach because I think humility always wins out. I think it goes against how business is looked at today, where people just need to be doggy dog world type of deal. Where it's like, no, you still can show a sense of humility with your employees, with your customers. You can admit when you're wrong, which kind of is going to lead us into your book here, The Permission to Screw Up. But just as we're talking a little bit more about this, how has that changed how you now work with employees, how you hire employees, and how you run and manage your business? Well, I think when I got the 45 people back, I realized that my business doesn't work unless I have great people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's impossible to make this work without them. And so that made me more focused on people than on the numbers. And truthfully, that's why I'm in the business. That's why I love what I do. Because over time, I realized it's the culture, it's building that environment, it's learning how to help people work best and and how to work together in sync. And that's what makes me want to wake up every day. So I realized over time that just because somebody is smart and just because they have a great GPA and a great resume doesn't mean that they're the right fit for the culture. Mm-hmm. And I really had to ask myself, what, what do I want student made to feel like when you walk in the door? What do I want it to feel like at team meetings? And I had to hire people who I knew would help our environment feel that way. Mm-hmm. So early on, I had this requirement that everyone had to have at least a 3.5 GPA to work at Student Made. And truthfully, the only reason I had that was just because I needed a quick way to weed people out. Mm-hmm. But I let so many people go and walk away because they had a 3.2 or a 3.0. <laughs> and but they were wonderful people. Mm-hmm. And then here I am hiring people who have a 4.0, but maybe they're not honest or their heart isn't in the right place. And so I've learned that you have to hire for heart. Mm. You can't ever teach anybody to be honest or have a team player mentality. Those are things that someone has or they don't have. If they have that, you can teach them to clean. You can teach them to do X, Y, or Z, but not the other way around. So we focus now on hiring the right people and trusting our gut. And even if someone isn't a student, because we mainly hire students, but they really fit our culture, we don't let that be the reason that they aren't hired. That's interesting. So how many people do you have working at Student Made right now at any given times? 
It varies. It depends on the season, but year round, we typically have at least 50 people on our team. Okay. We've actually downsized quite a bit. We used to have two locations and we used to have sometimes 400 people on our team at a time. But what we realized is in doing that, we were sacrificing our culture and the experience that we wanted to create for our students, we weren't able to create at that scale. And that's a really hard thing. How do you turn away customers? You know, you want to keep the culture that you love intact. And for us, the culture was more important. So we have chosen to keep it at a level where we know that we can deliver on the promise that we're making to our team members that this is the experience they will have. And it feels good. It feels really good. And you know, what was so awesome is when we went to some of our customers who used to hire us for busy times, and we would hire just 100 people to serve only them, you know, they understood, Mm -hmm. they commended us for making such a hard choice. If only every organization could think about their people first, you know, and when you make choices like that, And you tell your team, hey, we turned down this client because we care more about the culture and keeping this intact. That means so much to them. The message you're sending them is you come first and then they will naturally treat the customer well because they feel like they're your priority. Right. So I've never been into this whole idea about millennials in the workplace. And I always feel like there's a separation between people, generations, and I'm not a huge fan of that. But I know that's kind of the talk always in industry and all that stuff. So I'm going to ask for that purpose. But what does it look like with largely students, millennials in the workplace? How is that environment? Because when people think of millennials, a lot of times they think of high tech developers where this is relatively low tech. People are still doing physical labor. Let's just be honest when you're cleaning and stuff like that. So how does that look with millennials in the workplace as long as the attitude is in the right place, as you say? I don't believe in painting everyone with the same brush and saying all millennials are this way and Mm -hmm. all baby boomers are this way. And I think these aren't my words, but we see that millennials are lazy and entitled. And Mm. I always say, well, do you know someone in their 50s who's lazy? (laughs) And I know someone who's in their 20s who's lazy and their 50s who's lazy, you know, so it's kind of like, I think your challenge in leadership is you have this group of people and they've all been raised differently and they have different backgrounds and experiences and you have to figure out how to take this group and help them work together and sync and help them create an environment that brings out the best in them. Now, I think that millennials have been shaped largely by technology. I think that many had parents who out of love overhelped and were over-involved. Like we have parents who will come to our office and ask to sit in on the interview with their children or who will call us and ask for days off on behalf of their children. And Mm. what I see is when you have people who either had parents who did that, or you relied on technology, you can ask Google the questions that you have and Google will answer them. If you need directions, you can type it into an app and it tells you exactly where to go. It's just kind of, you forget how to think for yourself and maybe you haven't even been given the opportunity. So we really try at Student Made to teach our students to rely on themselves, to be independent, to trust their own abilities, which means that we allow people to mess up. Great. And we give them complete ownership of their, when they have a challenge, we say, give us two solutions. And unless one of those is going to kill somebody, we're like, go do either one. They sound great. Even if one of them may not be the best because we need them to learn. We need them to fail so that they can get back up again, figure it out, and then look back and say, I did that and be more confident going forward. Just like when I messed up and spent my $1,000 on sushi, you know, I learned never to do that again and got better at managing money. And so I think many organizations, what's sad is they say, well, we're not hiring millennials because it's too much work, you know, this and that. But really it's just like any 
human being, any generation, there's amazing potential. They're extremely capable. We just have to think about the technology and the effects of the over-involved parents and help them believe in themselves and help them become independent. So this is why I really appreciate your book, because you've learned a lot of lessons since starting your business, being involved in your business, working with a generation that so many people have opinions on. So this is the book, Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong. And you've shared some examples of doing a lot of things wrong, that is. But talk about the motivation for now kind of switching hats from being a CEO of a company here, and now you're becoming an author and almost having to pull from within yourself to kind of admit, hey, I kind of messed up almost everything when I started my business. Kristen and I begin to talk about her book and the important lessons that she's learned in leadership. Her book, Permission to Screw Up, talks about all the things she learned not to do in business. And this is important because a lot of times as we grow as individuals and business leaders, knowing who we aren't helps us to know who we are. Maybe five years ago, I started getting asked to speak about millennials and speak about how do you create a culture where people really want to be? Because I think what's interesting about Student Made is here we are in the most unglamorous industry doing work that is, you know, literally someone else's dirty work, but Mm -hmm. yet people really want to be a part of what we're doing. So I started speaking about that. And through that, I met my wonderful publisher. And when he said, I want you to write a book, I was really lost. I didn't know what to write about. And I started writing about millennials and then I realized that everything I wrote about really applied to all human beings and all generations. So I threw that away. And then I just started talking about all the things I spoke about, which honestly was success. It was all the things we did great, our amazing culture, our retention rate, our this, our that. And when I read back through it, it it just felt empty. And I went to dinner with a friend who said, who's written several books. And he said to me, in my experience, you know, you're writing the right book if it's really hard to write. So I thought about that and it wasn't hard to write. And so I thought, well, what is the book that you wish you would have found on the shelf? And I think what I realized is that many people who are successful write books. They maybe share a failure or two at the beginning, but then it sort of skips all the way to here we are now and here's what we learned, but they don't really go into how they learned. Mm. And not that these books are wonderful and you can glean so many things from them, but I just wanted to write that part. You know, how did I learn these lessons? What happened in that middle part? And I know now why a lot of people don't write about that because it's hard. You have to share things that don't always paint yourself in the best light. And I had to share stories that I was really embarrassed about and that I felt guilty about and that I didn't really want to be um, in print anywhere, you know, but I knew that that was the only way that I would really be able to do this. And what I realized is everyone messes up. No one is perfect. We just have to get comfortable talking about that more. And we put a lot of pressure on, especially when we're in a position of leadership on ourselves, because we think, well, we have to make people feel safe and secure. And like, you know, when they work with us, that they're joining this vision of success. But the reality is no one trusts anyone who pretends to be perfect all the time. So yeah, I think we just have to get more comfortable talking about our screw ups. And I hope that that's what permission to screw up will do for people. Yeah. And I think that it will. I read another good book by Tony Zappos that was a lot more employee, customer focused, delivering happiness, which in your book, you kind of referred to him a little bit because Zappos has been kind of a innovator in terms of focusing on the employee and the customer at the same time. In the book, you kind of lay out 10 different 
values, if you will. And I'm a fan of one this and kind of having some brevity and how to have an outlook on business. But you talk about rolling with the punches and jumping through flaming hoops and just different ways that you kind of evaluated the experiences that you've had within business and now how you're going to bring that to a core values within your business, which I think is really, really cool. So when you wrote this book, did you really kind of look at Tony Shea and some other people and say, how are they approaching their business? And and I also noticed that it was forwarded by Simon Sinek, which is, that's, come on, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. So Simon's, Simon's wonderful. He's a great friend of mine. And I mean, I've met so many amazing people along my journey and have read so many books that have really transformed my thinking. And so I really did have to go back and think, how did I learn this? And many times it was reading a book or meeting somebody that sparked something and that set me down this path of figuring it out. And Tony Shea was hugely a part of that. And I really learned about culture from him and how to create values that really keep your culture intact and help you attract the right people and know when it's time to let somebody go. But then there's a lot of things that you have to learn just by doing it. Yeah. And I think what Permission to Screw Up shows is that in every lesson I learned, it wasn't until I rolled up my sleeves and just did it that I learned either this works or it doesn't work. And sometimes what worked for other people didn't work for me. So I would encourage everyone to, no matter what it is, get out there, try, do it. Don't worry about being perfect. If you mess up, there's a learning opportunity in that. I think that failure for me, the way I define it is making the same exact mistake twice because you didn't take a lesson from it the first time and do it differently. Kristen, if someone wants to get in touch with you, they want to connect with your business. If they want to find you, how can they go about doing that? Well, Student Made's website is studentmade.com. Mine is kristenhadid.com. And then, of course, the book is available anywhere books are sold. And it's called Permission to Screw Up. Yeah, guys, go check out the book Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong. Kristen, I appreciate you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks. That's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you again to Kristen Hadid for showing us a remarkable way to grow a business, to work with a new generation of business leaders, young business leaders. Thank you to the people at Student Made. Go out and get her book, guys, Permission to Screw Up, How I Learned to Lead by Doing Almost Everything Wrong. Thanks again, guys. Look forward to talking to you next Sunday on the Marketplace Podcast. My style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious.